Hey, this is Tammy Rose, and this week I'm reading uh, Chapter 11, Higher Laws, where Thoreau is talking about vegetarianism and hunting and fishing and what it's like to be a human animal in this world um, and why he wants to eat a woodchuck or even a fried rat. Give a listen. Walden, Chapter 11, Higher Laws. As I came home through the woods with my string of fish, trailing my pole, it being now quite dark, I caught a glimpse of a woodchuck stealing across my path and felt a strange thrill of savage delight and was strongly tempted to seize and devour him raw. Not that I was hungry then, except for that wildness which he represented. Once or twice, however, while I lived at the pond, I found myself ranging the woods like a half-starved hound with a strange abandonment, seeking some kind of venison which I might devour, and no morsel could have been too savage for me. The wildest scenes had become unaccountably familiar. I found in myself, and still find, an instinct toward a higher, or, as it is named, spiritual life, as do most men, and another toward a primitive rank and savage one, and I reverence them both. I love the wild not less than the good. The wildness and adventure that are in fishing still recommended it to me. I like sometimes to take rank hold on life and spend my day more as the animals do. Perhaps I've owed to this employment and to hunting when quite young, my closest acquaintance with nature. They early introduce us to and detain us in scenery with which otherwise at that age we should have little acquaintance. Fishermen, hunters, woodchoppers, and others, spending their lives in the fields and woods, in a peculiar sense a part of nature themselves, are often in a more favorable mood for observing her, in the intervals of their pursuits, than philosophers or poets even, who approach her with expectation. She's not afraid to exhibit herself to them. The traveler on the prairie is naturally a hunter, on the headwaters of the Missouri and Columbia, a trapper, and at the falls of St. Mary, a fisherman. He who is only a traveler learns things at second hand and by the halves, and is poor authority. We are most interested when science reports what those men already know practically or instinctively, for that alone is a true humanity on account of human experience. They mistake who assert that the Yankee has few amusements because he has not so many public holidays and men and boys do not play so many games as they do in England. For here the more primitive but solitary amusements of hunting, fishing, and the like have not yet given place to the former. Almost every New England boy among my contemporaries shouldered a fowling piece between the ages of 10 and 14, and his hunting and fishing grounds were not limited like the preserves of an English nobleman, but were more boundless even than those of a savage. No wonder then that he did not oftener stay to play on the common, but already a change is taking place, owing not to an increased humanity, but to an increased scarcity of game, 
for perhaps the hunter is the greatest friend of the animals hunted, not accepting the humane society. Moreover, when at the pond, I wish sometimes to add fish to my fare for variety. I have actually fished from the same kind of necessity that the first fishers did. Whatever humanity I might conjure up against it was all factitious and concerned my philosophy more than my feelings. I speak of fishing only now, for I had long felt differently about fowling and sold my gun before I went to the woods. Not that I am less humane than others, but I did not perceive that my feelings were much affected. I did not pity the fishes nor the worms. This was habit. As for fowling, during the last years that I carried a gun, my excuse was that I was studying ornithology and sought only new or rare birds. But I confess that I am now inclined to think that there is a finer way of studying ornithology than this. It requires so much closer attention to the habits of birds that if for that reason only, I have been willing to omit the gun. Yet notwithstanding the objection on the score of humanity, I am compelled to doubt if equally valuable sports are ever substituted for these. And when some of my friends have asked me anxiously about their boys, whether they should let them hunt, I have answered yes, remembering that it was one of the best parts of my education. Make them hunters, though sportsmen only at first, if possible mighty hunters at last, so that they shall not find game large enough for them in this or any vegetable wilderness, hunters as well as fishers of men. Thus far, I am of the opinion of Chaucer's nun, who gave not of the text a pulled hen that saith that hunters ben not holy men. There is a period in the history of the individual, as of the race, when the hunters are the best men, as the Algonquins call them. We cannot but pity the boy who has never fired a gun. He is no more humane while his education has been sadly neglected. This was my answer with respect to those youths who were bent on this pursuit, trusting that they would soon outgrow it. No humane being past the thoughtless age of boyhood will wantonly murder any creature which hold its life by the same tenure that he does. The hare in its extremity cries like a child. I warn you, mothers, that my sympathies do not always make the usual philanthropic distinctions. Such is oftenest the young man's introduction to the forest, and the most original part of himself. He goes thither at first as a hunter and fisher, until at last, if he has the seeds of a better life in him, he distinguishes his proper objects, as a poet or naturalist it may be, and leaves the gun and fish pole behind. The mass of men are still and always young in this respect. In some countries, a hunting parson is no uncommon sight. Such a one might make a good shepherd's dog, but is far from being the good shepherd. I have been surprised to consider that the only obvious employment, except wood chopping, ice cutting, or the like business, which ever to my knowledge detained at Walden Pond for a whole half day of any of my fellow citizens, whether fathers or children of the town, with just one exception, was fishing. Commonly, they did not think that they were lucky or well paid for their time, unless they got a long string of fish, though they had the opportunity of seeing the pond all the while. They might go there a thousand times before the sediment of fishing would sink to the bottom and leave their purpose pure. But no doubt such a clarifying process would be going on all the while. 
the governor and his council faintly remember the pond, for they went a-fishing there when they were boys, but now they are too old and dignified to go a-fishing, and so they know it no more forever. Yet even they expect to go to heaven at last. If the legislature regards it, it is chiefly to regulate the number of hooks to be used there, but they know nothing about the hook of hooks with which to angle for the pond itself, impaling the legislature for a bait. Thus, even in civilized communities, the embryo man passes through the hunter stage of development. I have found repeatedly of late years that I cannot fish without falling a little in self-respect. I've tried it again and again. I have skill in it, and, like many of my fellows, a certain instinct for it, which revives from time to time, but always when I have done, I feel it would have been better if I had not fished. I think that I do not mistake. It is a faint intimation, yet so are the first streaks of mourning. There is unquestionably this instinct in me which belongs to the lower orders of creation, yet with every year I am less a fisherman, though without more humanity or even wisdom, at present I am no fisherman at all. But I see that if I were to live in a wilderness, I should again be tempted to become a fisher and hunter in earnest. Besides, there is something essentially unclean about this diet, and all flesh, and I begin to see where housework commences, and whence the endeavor, which costs so much, to wear a tidy and respectable appearance each day, to keep the house sweet and free from all ill odors and sights. Having been my own butcher and scullion and cook, as well as the gentleman for whom the dishes were served up, I can speak from an unusually complete experience. The practical objection to animal food in my case was its uncleanness. And besides, when I had caught and cleaned and cooked and eaten my fish, they seemed not to have fed me, essentially. It was insignificant and unnecessary and cost more than it came to. A little bread or a few potatoes would have done as well, with less trouble and filth. Like many of my contemporaries, I had rarely for many years used animal food or tea or coffee, etc., not so much because of any ill effects which I had traced to them as because they were not agreeable to my imagination. The repugnance to animal food is not the effect of experience but an instinct. It appeared more beautiful to live low and fare hard in many respects, and though I never did so, I went far enough to please my imagination. I believe that every man who has ever been earnest to preserve his higher or poetic faculties in the best condition has been particularly inclined to abstain from animal food and from much food of any kind. It is a significant fact stated by entomologists, I find in Kirby and Spence, that some insects in their perfect state, though furnished with organs of feeding, make no use of them. And they lay it down as a general rule that almost all insects in this state eat much, eat much less than that of larvae, the voracious caterpillar when transformed into a butterfly, and the gluttonous maggot when become a fly, content themselves with a drop or two of honey or some other sweet liquid. The abdomen under the wings of the butterfly still represent the larva. This is a tidbit which tempts his insectivorous fate. The gross feeder is a man in the larva state, and there are whole nations in that condition, nations without fancy or imagination, 
whose vast abdomens betray them. It is hard to provide and cook so simple and clean a diet as will not offend the imagination. But this, I think, is to be fed when we feed the body, that they should both sit down at the same table. Yet perhaps this may be done. The fruits eaten temperately need not make us ashamed of our appetites, nor interrupt the worthiest pursuits. But put an extra condiment into your dish, and it will poison you. It is not worth the while to live by rich cookery. Much, most men would feel shame if caught preparing with their own hands precisely such a dinner, whether animal or vegetable food, as is every day prepared for them by others. Yet till this is otherwise, we are not civilized, and if gentlemen and ladies are not true men and women. This certainly suggests what change is to be made. It may be vain to ask why the imagination will not be reconciled to flesh and fat. I am satisfied that it is not. Is it not a reproach that man is a carnivorous animal? True, he can and does live in a great measure by preying on other animals. But this is a miserable way. As anyone who will go to the snaring rabbits or slaughtering lambs may learn, and he will be regarded as a benefactor of his race who will teach man to confine himself to a more innocent and wholesome diet. Whatever my own practice may be, I have no doubt that it is part of the destiny of the human race in its gradual improvement to leave off eating animals as surely as the savage tribes have left off eating each other when they come in contact with the more civilized. If one listens to the faintest but constant suggestions of his genius, which are certainly true, he does not to what extremes or even insanity it may lead him. And yet that way, as he grows more resolute and faithful, his road lies. The faintest assured objection which one healthy man feels will at length prevail over the arguments and customs of mankind. No man ever followed his genius till it misled him. Though the results were bodily weakness, yet perhaps no one can say that the consequences were to be regretted, for these were a life in conformity to highest principles. If the day and the night are such that you greet them with joy, and life emits a fragrance like flowers and sweet-scented herbs, it is more elastic, more starry, more immortal, that is your success." All nature is your congratulation, and you have cause momentarily to bless yourself. The greatest gains and values are farthest from being appreciated. We easily come to doubt if they exist. We soon forget them. They are the highest reality. Perhaps the facts most astounding and most real are never communicated by man to man. The true harvest of my daily life is somewhat as intangible and indescribable as the tints of morning or evening. It is a little stardust caught, a segment of a rainbow which I have clutched. Yet for my part, I was never unusually squeamish. I could sometimes eat a fried rat with good relish if it were necessary. I am glad to have drunk water so long for the same reason that I prefer the natural sky to an opium eater's heaven. I would fain keep sober always, and there are infinite degrees of drunkenness. I believe that water is the only drink for a wise man. Wine is not so noble a liquor. And think of dashing the hopes of the morning with a cup of warm coffee, or of an evening with a dish of tea. Ah, how low I fall when I am tempted by them. Even music may be intoxicating. 
Such apparently slight causes destroyed Greece and Rome and will destroy England and America. Of all ebriosity, who does not prefer to be intoxicated by the air he breathes? I have found it to be the most serious objection to coarse labors long continued, that they compelled me to eat and drink coarsely also. But to tell the truth, I find myself at present somewhat less particular in these respects. I carry less religion to the table, ask no blessing, not because I am wiser than I was, but I am obliged to confess, because however much it is to be regretted, with years I have grown more coarse and indifferent. Perhaps these questions are entertained only in youth, as most believe of poetry. My practice is nowhere. My opinion is here. Nevertheless, I am far from regarding myself as one of those privileged ones to whom the Ved refers when he says that he who has true faith in the omnipresent supreme being may eat all that exists. That is, is not bound to inquire what is his food or who prepares it, and even in their case it is to be observed, as a Hindu commentator has remarked, that the Vedant limits his privilege to the time of distress. Who has not sometimes derived an inexpressible satisfaction from his food in which appetite had no share? I have been thrilled to think that I owed a mental perception to the commonly gross sense of taste, that I have been inspired through the palate, that some berries which I had eaten on a hillside had fed my genius. The soul not being mistress of herself, says Thang Su, one looks and one does not see, one listens and one does not hear, one eats and one does not know the savor of food. He who distinguishes the true savor of his food can never be a glutton. He who does not cannot be otherwise. A Puritan may go to his brown bread crust with as gross an appetite as ever an alderman to his turtle. Not that food which entereth into that mouth defileth a man, but the appetite with which it is eaten. It is neither the quality nor the quantity, but the devotion to sensual flavor, savors, that when is eaten is not a viand to sustain our animal or inspire our spiritual life, but food for the worms that possess us. If the hunter has a taste for mud turtles, muskrats, and other such savage tidbits, the fine lady indulges a taste for jelly made of a calf's foot or for sardines from over the sea, and they are even. He goes to the mill pond, she to her preserve pot. The wonder is how they, how you and I, can live this slimy, beastly life eating and drinking. Our whole life is startlingly moral. There is never an instant's truce between virtue and vice. Goodness is the only investment that never fails. In the music of the harp which trembles round the world, it is the insisting on this which thrills us. The harp is the traveling patterer for the universe's insurance company, recommending its laws, and our little goodness is all the assessment that we pay. Though the youth at last grows indifferent, the laws of the universe are not indifferent, but are forever on the side of the most sensitive. Listen to every zephyr for some reproof, for it is surely there, 
and he is unfortunate who does not hear it. We cannot touch a string or move a stop, but the charming moral transfixes us. Many an irksome noise, go a long way off, is heard as music, a proud, sweet satire on the meanness of our lives. We are conscious of an animal in us, which awakens in proportion as our higher nature slumbers. It is reptile and sensual, and perhaps cannot be wholly expelled, like the worms which even in life and health occupy our bodies. Possibly we may withdraw from it, but never change its nature. I fear that it may enjoy a certain health of its own, that we may be well, yet not pure. The other day I picked up the lower jaw of a hog, with white and sound teeth and tusks, which suggested that there was an animal health and vigor distinct from the spiritual. This creature succeeded by other means than temperance and purity. That in which men differ from brute beasts, says Mencius, is a thing very inconsiderable. The common herd lose it very soon. Superior men preserve it carefully. Who knows what sort of life would result if we had attained to purity? If I knew so wise a man as could teach me purity, I would go to seek him forthwith. A command over our passions and over the external senses of the body and good acts are declared by the Ved to be indispensable in the mind's approximation to God. Yet the spirit can for the time pervade and control every member and function of the body and transmute what in form is the grossest sensuality into purity and devotion. The generative energy, which, when we are loose, dissipates and makes us unclean, when we are continent, invigorates and inspires us. Chastity is the flowering of man, and what are called genius, heroism, holiness, and the like, are but various fruits which succeed it. Man flows at once to God when the channel of purity is open. By turns, our purity inspires and our impurity casts us down. He is blessed who is assured that the animal is dying out in him day by day and the divine being established. Perhaps there is none but has cause for shame on account of the inferior and brutish nature to which he is allied. I fear that we are such gods or demigods only as fawns and satyrs, the divine allied to beasts, the creatures of appetite, and that, to some extent, our very life is our disgrace. How happies he's who hath due place assigned to his beasts and disafforested his mind, can use his horse, goat, wolf, and every beast, and not ass himself to all the rest? Else man not only is the herd of swine, but he's those devils too which did incline them to a headlong rage and made them worse. All sensuality is one, though it takes many forms. All purity is one. It is the same whether a man eat or drink or cohabit or sleep sensually. They are but one appetite. And we only need to see a person do any one of those things to know how great a sensualist he is. The impure can neither stand nor sit with purity. When a reptile is attacked at one mouth of his burrow, he shows himself in another. 
If you would be chaste, you must be temperate. What is chastity? How shall a man know if he is chaste? He shall not know it. We have heard of this virtue, but we know not what it is. We speak comfortably, conformably to the rumor which we have heard. From exertion come wisdom and purity. From sloth, ignorance and sensuality. If the student sensuality is a sluggish habit of mind, in the student, sensuality is a sluggish habit of mind. An unclean person is university, a sloth is universally a slothful one, one who sits by a stove, whom the sun shines on prostate, prostrate, who replaces without being fatigued. If you would avoid uncleanness and all the sins, work earnestly, though it be at cleaning a stable. Nature is hard to be overcome, but she must be overcome. What avails it that you are Christian if you are not purer than heathen, if you deny yourself no more, if you are not more religious? I know many systems of religion esteemed heathenish, whose precepts fill the reader with shame and provoke him to new endeavors, though it be to the performance of rites merely. I hesitate to say these things, but it is not because of the subject. I care not how obscene my words are, but because I cannot speak of them without betraying my impurity. We discourse freely without shame of one form of sensuality and are silent about another. We are so degraded that we cannot speak simply of the necessary functions of human nature. In earlier ages, in some countries, every function was reverently spoken of and regulated by law. Nothing was too trivial for the Hindu lawgiver, however offensive it may be to modern taste. He teaches how to eat, drink, cohabit, void excrement and urine, and the like, elevating what is mean, and does not falsely ex excuse himself by calling these things trifles. Every man is the builder of a temple, called his body, to the God he worships, after a style purely his own, nor can he get off by hammering marble instead. We are all sculptors and painters, and our material is our own flesh and blood and bones. Any nobleness begins at once to refine a man's features, any meanness or sensuality to embrute them. John Farmer sat at his door one September evening after a hard day's work, his mind still running on his labor, more or less. Having bathed, he sat down to recreate his intellectual man. It was a rather cool evening, and some of his neighbors were apprehending a frost. He had not attended to the train of his thoughts long when he heard someone playing on a flute, and that sound harmonized with his mood. Still he thought of his work, but the burden of his thought was that th though he kept running in his head, and he found himself planning and contriving it against his will, yet it concerned him very little. It was no more than the scurf of his skin, but was constantly shuffled off. But the notes of the flute came home to his ears out of a different spear from that he worked in, and suggested work for certain faculties which slumbered in him. They gently did away with the street and the village and the state in which he lived. A voice said to him, Why do you stay here and live this mean, moiling life when a glorious existence is possible for you? Those same stars twinkle over other fields than these, but how to come out of this condition and actually and actually migrate thither. All that he could think of was to practice some new austerity, 
to let his mind descend into his body and redeem it and treat himself with ever-increasing respect. Hey, so this is Tammy Rose of TranscendentalConquer.com. Uh, I've just read chapter 11, Higher Laws, and uh, I feel like this is a really funny chapter. Um, first of all, like, why did he call it Higher Laws when most of this chapter is about, like, eating and fishing and um, hunting and, um, like, the, the inherent difference between, like, the animal body that we all inhabit and, like, these, whatever the, um, the rationale and the morality that we put on all of our um, actions and basic actions. Um, it's, a. you know, there, there, there are plenty of moments when I feel like he kind of goes overboard to exaggerate the effect, you know, like he talks about, he opens with like, you know, the, the strange thrill of savage delight and strongly being tempted to seize and devour this woodchuck raw, you know, not that he was hungry then, except he was hungry for the wildness, which the wild check, the, the woodchuck represented, um, later on, or I don't know if it's here in his journals. Um, he does have a fight with this woodchuck or a woodchuck, um, because he's, he has a bean field and, you know, I think he, at one point he does catch a woodchuck and he eats him, um, you know, kind of be, I think because they're kind of, foes you know and if you have ever had a woodchuck in your garden um you can see the utter uh destruction <laughs> that they cause and you're trying so hard to you know tend to your garden and then you come by the very next morning and the woodchuck has like just dug it up and eaten everything um so i like that he's using the woodchuck as this um as this savage you know, crazy symbol of wildness. Um, the, the, ne this section. Okay. So, so here's something that I don't, I was going to say, I don't understand, but maybe I do understand it. Or at least I, um, when it comes to hunting, right? Like how was hunting perceived in his day? Cause the, like the line I really want to get to is like, uh, should I give my small child a gun so he can be a hunter? And Henry is like, yes, yes, you should. Um, uh, but like, there's, there's a line he has, I don't know if I can find it now, where he's like, um, just being like, the, the point is just being out in nature, you get to experience more of nature, even though you might not even notice it. Um, but you experience more of nature than like the philosopher and the poet, right? Because the philosopher and the poet, like they show up to a forest and they expect something of it, right? They expect to be moved and they expect to have this marvelous, you know, uh, otherworldly religious almost or, you know, non-religious religious moment of some kind of amazing transcendence, Um 
whereas like a hunter or a fisherman um, kind of come to it with a little bit more of a scientific eye and you get to learn the habits of birds and fish and you like your you the powers of observation are closer than you know the poet or philosopher um which is interesting also like he he makes me think of his friend uh Ellery Channing who is you know um not really known for his practicality um but who's a poet and he's also not really known for his poetry anymore he's he's just sort of known for being um Henry's friend and I think one of the few people that he could tolerate while walking through the woods. Um, you know, but there are there are lots of people that I think Henry went to the woods with um, who had, or I, I was going to say, his friends would go and would have no clue about nature and Henry would teach them. Um, but people like Nathaniel Hawthorne, you know, would talk about like being with Henry and Henry is like this nature boy. You know, Henry knows how to, how to, how to, um, how to direct a canoe as if it's like second nature, you know, and he, and he can call animals to himself, right? And, you know, like Cinderella or something, right? Like the birds and the squirrels and everybody just come. And it's like this magical thing that other people see. And I feel like it's funny that Henry, I think Henry doesn't even realize how close he is to nature sometimes. Um, compared to other people in society. Um, when when he recommends that, you know, young boys go fishing, right? I have answered, okay, I have answered yes, remembering that it was one of the best parts of my education. Make them hunters, like the emphasis is on make. Those sportsmen only at first, if possible, mighty hunters at last, so that they shall not find game large enough for them in this or any vegetable wilderness, hunters as well as fishers of men. Um, you know, and he, he goes on. There is a period in the history of the individual as of the race when the hunters are the best men, as the Algonquins called them. Right, so he's mentioning specifically Native Americans. Um. And this line, we cannot but pity the boy who has never fired a gun. Huh. Um, like, what, what, what am I supposed to say to that in, like, the context of, um, I'm reading this in late March of 2022. Um, the, the, and, like, I, I hate to bring it up, but, like, there are, school shootings like the idea of handing small children guns is that they are yes literally hunters of men um which turns the i think his whole ideas on its on their head i think what henry is trying to say is um give them a sense of what the sport quote unquote of hunting is like um that and like, what does that even mean? Right? Like it means that you go out into the woods and, you know, the sport means that you're doing it for exercise or that there are, there's a game and you know the rules of the game. And what are the rules of the game? Right? Like, 
because the game seems to like shoot, like shoot animals, right? Is there like an honor that you're not going to shoot the mother of Bambi? Is there, you know, like, are you like, like, and also like the rules of the game are rules that humans are making? Like, do the animals have any say in this? Um, I feel like this is all, and then, and, but I, I love that he's, he's, um, he's weighing like all sides of this, right? Some people don't like, um, well, I would say in America, a lot of people don't like it if you are nuanced, right? Or if you are, um, ambiguous or, you know, if you weigh both sides of an issue, um, because just later down on the page, um, no human being past the thoughtless age of boyhood will wantonly murder any creature which holds its life by the same tenure that he does. The hair in its extremity cries like a child. I warn you, mothers, that my sympathies do not always make the usual um, philanthropic distinctions. And the way that the word philanthropic is set in type here um um only half only like three quarters of the word is italicized the anthropic part the the um phil which means is greek for love uh and the like anthropic piece is greek for um anthropos uh human um so I feel like I warn you mothers that my sympathies do not always make the usual philanthropic dis- distinctions. Um, um, such is oftenest the youngest, the young man's introduction to the forest. So that I get, and the most original part of himself. He goes thither at first as a hunter and fisher until at last, if he has the seeds of a better life in him, he distinguishes his proper objects as a poet or naturalist, it may be, and leaves the gun and fish hole behind, fish pole behind. Um, the mass of men are still and always young in this respect, maybe because like they're still hunters and they don't leave the fish pole behind. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, I've been surprised to consider that the only obvious employment, except wood chopping, ice cutting, or the like business, which ever to my knowledge detained at Walden Pond for a whole half day, any of my fellow citizens, whether fathers or children of the town, with just one exception, was fishing. Um, commonly, they did, they did not think they were lucky or well paid for their time unless they got a long string of fish, though they had the opportunity of seeing the pond all the while. Right? Uh, they might go there a thousand times before the sediment of fishing would sink to the bottom and leave their purpose pure. Um, but no doubt such a clarifying process would be going on all the while. Um, I, uh, I feel like this is, this is an ongoing thing, right? Like is, is this a stage? Is this a sport? Is fishing, like, are you fishing to be out in nature? Are you fishing for food? Are you, um, it's funny. I've seen, so I, I watch Turner classic movies and some of the movies they've shown recently were, um, on golden pond where fishing is kind of like this bonding experience in the movie. Um, and then another, 
another movie was A River Runs Through It. And um, I found that one hard to watch just because it, it um, I, I, I couldn't, somehow I just couldn't relate to it and I got distracted um, from the movie. But the movie itself was very beautifully shot. And I was, <laughs> I was more interested when they were on the river and fishing than any of the rest of the stuff that happened to them in their lives. So, you know, it's it's one of those movies that you you um turn the sound off after a while and you just kind of like let it keep going. So, every so often you look up and you're like, "Oh, yes, more fish." Um the another quote here. If the legislature regards it, it is chiefly to regulate the number of hooks to be used there, but they know nothing about the hook of hooks with which to angle for the pond itself in impaling the legislature for a bait. Um, and I, I will say now that I think that the, um, the, I, I believe that Walden is a state park and it's run fairly well. If you talk to the rangers, um, they actually talk about, um, uh, not just conservation, but also, um, being stewards of the land. Um, I think I've mentioned this before in the fifties, they had a different philosophy. And at one point they poisoned the, the lake, the pond itself, um, so that all the fish there would die. And then they reseeded it or they, they put like the fish that fishermen would more typically want (laughs) back into the pond. Um, and it's funny, like there's a, there's a line, I don't, I don't know where he says, um, where, you know, he, he would love, he would actually love to add more fish, right? Which I think is hysterical. Um, so, you know, but the larger point is I do feel like the, the Massachusetts does a fairly good job with Walden, um, that it's not just a matter of, putting random laws about how many people can fish at a time or whatever. Um, There was something that was done last July that I'm still um, completely against and I think was a horrible decision um, to regulate open water swimming, Um, which, and like, and that's definitely where I'm like, oh, we should draw the line at government being involved at all. Um, but you know, there is an argument to be made about like, how do you preserve the purity of the water? Um, but you know, I was, I grew up playing on the shores of Walden. I would go there every summer. I've swum there every summer of my life. Um, and I think that you would be doing uh, a greater disservice taking, um, the ability to swim across the lake and the ability for people to swim in it at all. Um, then the whole idea of not allowing kids to be hunters from a very young age. Like I, I don't understand how, um, whatever reasoning, <coughs> um, would allow hunting versus swimming. Um, I was going to say there's a, you know, the, the idea, and I like that he sells his gun before he goes to Walden. Um, one of the 
like monumental purchases in his life was actually a spyglass, um, which is like a handheld, um, you know, like I'm thinking of like, you know, like on a pirate ship, right? Like one of those that it's, it's like a handheld, um, yeah, spyglass, I guess. Like it's not quite a telescope, right? Like it doesn't go that far, but it's a magnifying glass that can, you can keep in your pocket and then, you know, bring out and it, it extends. Um, so what would he have, would he have changed his mind about handing children a gun? Right. Um, cause he sort of evolves into being a person who wants to study the, the habits of birds. Right. So what if when he was young, he was given a spyglass instead of a gun? Um, would he have that same, I think he would have the same kind of philosophy that, yes, if you, if you turn it into a game, if you turn it into a sport, if you teach kids how to be, you know, young ornithologists and create a life list and, you know, it, you're learning about nature by observing it rather than interfering with it and, and killing birds, um, you know, later, later in his life, he was definitely against the whole idea. Um, there's a, the guy who was the head of, um, I think ornithology and maybe other, but, um, biological departments at Harvard, um, was Louis Agassiz. And, you know, he was kind of known for this whole idea of like, yes, you, you kill them and then you can study anatomy. Um, and he's also the person who commissioned, um, photographs of enslaved people, um, and, you know, like, like stark photographs where, you know, people are stripped bare and the very famous photograph of the enslaved gentleman who has all of these, um, marks and scars on his back. And Agassiz was kind of like doing it for, um, you know, like for the, for classification purposes, right. For the whole, like almost eugenics movement of like, let's, let's figure out how to rank people as we are figuring out how to categorize animals, like who, like which races are good and all of that. Um, you know, do, do sick people, you know, should they be allowed to have children? That sort of thing, like how and and that's a whole that's a whole other issue, but um, like that's that's kind of what was going on in in this period of time, right? This is um, Walden, I think, comes out um, years like a few years before Darwin's Origin of the Species. I want to say that's fifty nine, and and Walden comes out in fifty four. Um, so there's a lot of um, categorizing and figuring out, um, you know, the, um, the survival of the fittest rule, um, versus something that I think is a little bit more commonplace now where it's not the survival of the fittest, but it's those that have the strongest networks (laughs) and can socialize the best to organize, um, for the propagation of the species that it's not about, um, you know, that the, 
uh, you know, that the, that only the healthiest members of every, um, every species survive or whatever other kinds of virtues. And, and this is, this is another thing that he does get into, um, in this chapter, getting back to Thoreau, um, the whole thing about moral and the food that we're eating and like what is moral and what is not. And, um, you know, all of these, like it, like it, as if it has to be classified as good or bad. Um, which I think is, is odd. Um, when he's talking about preparing food, right? So lots of people who are vegetarian or vegan, um, you know, are cite Henry and his, um, eating habits as, you know, one of the, the earliest, um, explorations of, you know, how are you eating a diet and are you, you know, are, is it a moral diet? Is it, you know, should you not eat animals for political reasons or is it for reasons of convenience or health or all of these other things? Um, like I like the line where he's like, having been my own butcher and scullion and cook, as well as the gentleman for whom the dishes were served up, I can speak from an unusually complete experience. Um, right. Like he's, he's bring he's trotting out like the metaphor of like the English gentleman, um, situation versus what was actually probably more common where all the women were cooking and they would be all of these things. Um, you know, so he's like, but again, he's writing from the privileged male point of view of like, I actually went out and I, you know, I hunted and, I prepared my food. Oh my God. Um, it's a, like, again, it's a whole other world back then. Um, he, like he did, he went home on Sundays to eat with his mother and his family, right? Like it's, it's, it's fine. It's fine. And you know, we don't have to call him out as a hypocrite at all. Um, you know, except, and, and just at moments like these, he's not even a hypocrite. He's just being a, um, you know, like this stuff doesn't really even get written about. So he's, he's one of the few people to actually, um, explore this as like in a philosophical slash literary slash, you know, is this a biography? Is this nonfiction? Like whatever, whatever kind of book this is, because it's not a cookbook. It's not like a Martha Stewart book. Um, although there are plenty of people who are saying that he's, he's spoofing the Martha Stewart type books of his time. Uh, which is true, especially when he's talking about like building the, building the cabin. Um, but I, I like that he's, he's saying the practical objection to animal food in my case was its uncleanness. And besides when I had caught and cleaned and cooked and eaten my fish, they seemed not to have fed me essentially. It was insignificant and unnecessary and cost more than it came to. A little bread or a few potatoes would have done as well with less trouble and filth. <laughs> like, I, I, I love it. Um, like many of my contemporaries, I had rarely for many years used animal food or tea or coffee and etc. Not so much because of any ill effects, which I had traced to them, as because they were not agreeable to my imagination. Um, I, think, I think that this is... Um, you know, there, there are, uh, they were not agreeable to my imagination. Uh, if anybody has actually ever had to gut a fish and scale it and clean it, 
Like, it's a big thing, um, especially if you're not used to it. Um, and I personally, I consider myself a, a vegetarian at home um, and an omnivore at restaurants, um, literally because of this. <laughs> right? Like I, I can honestly, I consider myself to be on the lazy diet. I generally don't like to deal with any kind of raw meats, um, because it, you know, raw chicken contaminates everything it touches and you have to be super careful and you have to clean everything. Um, I would always, <laughs> if I have my druthers, I would always just rather have a salad, you know, just rather have vegetables. Um, I, I happily participate in the wall in the Walden CSA. And I would rather um, eat vegetables like, you know, I would like to say because they're healthier and, and all of these, you know, morally beneficial things. Um, but generally, I'm just lazy, you know, like I like tofu because, again, it doesn't contaminate surfaces um, and it doesn't feel like, you know, like like chicken or beef or fish. Like those things just feel like gross <laughs> and annoying to deal with if you're if you're, you know, just as a as a sensual experience. Um, I feel like, and I feel like vegetables are fun and you wash them and you like, you're washing the dirt off of them. And it's like a whole, it's a whole other experience. Um, I will let me say here also that, um, that there are, um, that Henry's first, one of Henry's first biographers was Henry Salt. And he's one of those gentlemen who wrote like 30 books in his lifetime. Um, one of those books was about vegetarianism. Um, and Henry Salt made the acquaintance of Gandhi, I believe, on a train. <laughs> I think were they like sitting in the same compartment or something like that. Um, and I believe that Henry Salt handed Gandhi um, a copy of his biography of Thoreau, and I believe also a copy of um, his book on vegetarianism. And so that influenced Gandhi in both ways. Um, so if you are interested in vegetarianism, look that up. Um, I think that it's funny that he goes into like the whole idea of the insects. Um, they, insects are also, you know, vegetarians themselves. They'll eat honey. Um, especially when they're in the larval state. Um, I think that that's you know, that he's, he's pulling out a lot of really interesting points here. Um, I could sometimes eat a fried rat with good relish. <coughs> like, um, he gets into this whole thing of, um, you know, drunkenness, right? And, and, you know, people, people talk about this. Water is the only drink for a wise man. Um, the, the actually, so the section I like is actually earlier up on the page. Um, if the day and night are such that you greet them with joy and life emits a fragrance like flowers and sweet scented herbs is more elastic, more starry, more immortal. That is your success. All nature is your congratulation and you have cause momentarily to bless yourself. Um, you know, we easily come to, uh, the greatest gains and values are farthest from being appreciated. We easily come to doubt if they exist soon forget them. They are the highest reality. Um, that, that goes into, and it even gets poetic. It is a little stardust caught a segment of a rainbow, which I have clutched. Um, like, I feel like this is 
part of the heart of the argument of the whole book, right? Like nature at its finest is the ultimate state that humans, or at least him, you know, like that's, that's the ultimate state that he wanted to, to go towards, um, you know, and that everything else is like fine, right? Like he can give up tea and coffee, he can have a ride, he can have a fried rat or not, you know, he can eat a woodchuck, whatever. But like, um, there's so many other things that we don't take, that we don't hold up as the thing, as the highest um, state of being, right? Like even music may be intoxicating. I love that. Um My practice is nowhere. My opinion is here. Um, he, and he, he brings in like Hindu commentators, you know, I, I love that he's, um, he's going beyond the culture of the town and of New England and of America. Um, and even, you know, what he knows of England and stuff to, um, I, and I, I, I know that he had the first, I think he had the first copy of the Bhagavad Gita in America because it was sent by somebody in England, a friend of his in England. Um, and so he uses it, right? And then he also mentions another, another reference, Sang Su. Um, one looks and one does not see, one listens and does not hear, one eats and one does not know the savor of food. Um, it's, that sounds Chinese to me. I'm not sure. Um, but I love that he's explore, he's going across different, different cultures to see, you know, what all of this really is, um, to really figure out, um, a lot of the, cause I, I feel like it comes up in religion that, oh, this is, this is a, you know, this is a a law of nature, right? And this is what we take for granted. And if religion has to teach you that, then it can't be a universal law, right? Um, I like that he's making some kind of joke. The harp is the traveling patterer for the universe's insurance company. Uh, And those words are um, capitalized. You know, recommending its laws and our little goodness is all the assessment that we pay. Um. Though the youth at last grows indifferent, the laws of the universe are not indifferent, but are forever on the side of the most sensitive. Listen to every zephyr for some reproof, for it is surely there, and he is unfortunate who does not hear it. Um, yeah, like I've, I've gone through life, and every so often, you know, I've been on a date or hanging out with a friend at night, and I'm like, oh, look, there is the moon. And, uh, there have been two people in my life who look at the moon and just shrug. And immediately I was like, Oh my God, I know exactly. I know everything I need to know about this person. Um, they're not listening to, they're not listening to Zephyrs. Like they, you know, they can't, um, they can't hold the natural world in wonder. And that's a, um, I would like to say that that's kind of a, a deal breaker for me. Um, but then there's, you know, 
there are all sorts of other ways to try to figure out what is what is good, what is bad. Um, he uses the word sensuality, um, and he's not always referring to um, like sex, right? Like I feel like what we hear that word and immediately, you know, our you know, in 2022, we think of sex, sen- like anything sensual is sexual. Um, but he's just thinking of it in terms of the senses. Um, and again, he, he brings up how uh, the Hindu lawgiver, how, however offensive it may be to modern taste, quote unquote modern taste, he teaches how to ink, eat, drink, cohabit, void excrement and urine and the like elevating what is mean and does not falsely excuse himself by calling these things trifles, right? I believe there is a, um, a Hebrew prayer about, um, giving thanks that the bodies, that all of the body's rivers are working appropriately. And you can say that, you know, just when you think of blood clots or indigestion or like all of the other, issues that we laugh about, um, but which are actually extremely serious. Um, for, um, for me and my mother, like she was having problems with her liver, but we didn't realize things were serious until, you know, um, she literally, she literally couldn't go to the bathroom anymore because her kidney, um, her kidneys had just stopped functioning. And, you know, that's one of those, and, you know, and she passed away a week later. I've just celebrated, celebrated? Um, I've just marked the anniversary of my mom's passing a little while ago. And it's like, it's those, it's those minor things, like the trifles, right? That are huge and important. And these daily activities of what it means to be an, an animal you know, a, a, an animal being in this world, things that need to happen. Um, and when they don't happen, it, you know, it, you know, it's, it's, the organism can no longer live. It's a, it's a huge, huge deal. And there's a lot that, you know, we either don't discuss or it doesn't get written about, or, um, you know, we're embarrassed to even talk about and he's he's being very straightforward um and he's like it all like all of this belongs in the pages of my book so that's that's me talking about higher laws um thank you very much and if you have any other questions or if this any of this interests you um head to transcendental conquered dot com or transcendentalconquered.org and there we have many other um, episodes of this podcast and we have conquered days which are a lovely conversational series um, we have a facebook group that is still going um, called transcendental conquered formerly transcendentalist 2021 uh, we read 12 different transcendental um, related authors in 2021. And now we are continuing with conversations um, of 19th century women, women authors. Um, Thank you very much for listening.